culture thrives when discussions about what is true, what is just, and what is beautiful is remembered as an ongoing, never-ending, never-complete conversation. To quote Milton, by the known rules of ancient liberty, welcome to Risky Conversations. I am your co-host, Ember Sadat. Join me and my co-host, Ace Deliri, as we engage in this ancient tradition of discussions around interesting topics with utterly fascinating people. Welcome, Judd. Please introduce yourself to our audience, and we'll get started. Thanks, ACN. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, my name is Jed Trot. Uh, I've grown up in the Philadelphia area um, in the U.S. Uh, my entire life, and um, my life has gone in uh, ways that I never uh, thought that it would. Um, which has been, you know, a lot of fun and uh, also a lot of pain in some ways. Um, so, uh, but I'm very thankful for all of it um, because uh, right now I have, you know, a life that I think not a lot of people would necessarily choose, but um, is a lot of joy um, mm. to me. So, to wit, um, I was I went to college at the University of Pennsylvania uh, when I was 18. I was married and I had a kid when I was 19 okay. Wow. Okay. and in between now and then and now and I'm 36 almost 37 now I have nine kids um wow. and in between there I, I almost went bankrupt and uh well basically de facto did and um I have uh so i failed being a, a financial planner and then I've I, now I work in the energy industry in something called demand response which is a, a little obscure and um, that's worked out pretty well wow that's awesome and, and and the reason I mean like I said uh, what what makes this interesting for us is that in the given the modern context of people not only not getting married but uh, almost effectively uh, being averse to having kids, for a person to have been married so young and to have so many kids, what is that like for you? Given I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that the vast majority of the people you interact with at work, or at least even in normal life, kind of see you as the anomaly, where more more than likely you, you would have you would have been the norm just a few centuries back, right? That's true. I do think sometimes I, I feel like I'm living in a, a time warp, um, <laughs> where you know I have a, I guess in some sense what you would call pretty traditional life. Uh, I go out and work and, and make all the money, and, and uh, my wife um, takes care of our kids. She homeschools a few of them. You must actually hate sleep because how do you get any sleep with all nine right. kids? So I'm gonna, <laughs> I can answer that question very practically. Um, <laughs> you, having two kids and having nine kids is not um, – it's not the same sport. Right. It, it's Clearly. like um, – so – and I sleep – very well. Uh, actually, until, until recently. Um, so I had uh, my youngest son now has uh, cerebral palsy, um, and he had quite a lot of compli- uh, complications when he was born. So the last year and a half haven't been so great on the sleep. But up, up until then, you know, I've slept very well, some of which has just been uh, being lucky with kids who sleep well. But, you know, other of it is we have to sleep well. Um, mm. And we can't have all the kids waking up all the time and, you know, uh, having various issues during the night. So we just don't, you know, if somebody comes into our room, comfort them, pat them on the head and put them back in their bed. I can't, like, I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. 
They have to okay. go back to bed. I have to go back to sleep. So right. over time, you do it that way, and they don't get up. Mm. Um, they sleep, you sleep, and that's the way it's got to be. Right. Now, if okay. I only had two kids, then <laughs> maybe I could spend half an hour with them up at night, like asking them about what their bad dream was. Right. Um, and then they would keep getting up at night. And right. that sort of – uh, that, that you can extrapolate that down the line to how it works. <laughs> <laughs> so so let me get this straight so you you stumble upon this circuit after which after the first kid or after the third kid when did you realize that this is how it has to go uh, uh because... that's a good question that is... <laughs> so it's probably with the third and fourth kid which was a uh so we um decided to foster after okay. um our second daughter was born because we were having trouble getting uh pregnant Okay. And so we, my son, Ben, came to live with us uh, August, um, and then we uh, got pregnant with uh, my daughter, Hazel, a month after that in September. Oh, okay. So that was a double whammy. Um, <laughs> you could, Yeah, so they're like 15 months apart, and Ben also has cerebral palsy. So oh. he, you know, we had two kids <laughs> under two, neither of whom could walk. So we all did, mm. all of a sudden we were like, okay, you know, we can't do this. Um, mm. And uh, that's when we were sort of, I think that's when we transi- transitioned from, you know, having a manageable two kids that we can do a lot of one-on-one um, right. sort of defense to doing a man's right. defense. <laughs> I mean, doing a zone defense. The zone yeah. defense, right, right, right. Because I was going to say, there's no way you could do man on that. Yeah, no. I mean, <laughs> they're small, so they're not as fast, but still. <laughs> There's there's always one getting away from you that's somewhere, right? Right. right. Yep. <laughs> so so how does uh so like I said what what like to most people listening in in the modern day and age, like the idea like are are you planning on having more kids or or is nine the number the magic number where you guys feel like it's enough? Yeah, I, I mean I don't know if there's a magic number, but I'm pretty sure that we're gonna stick here. Mm. Um, it's just the issues that we have. Uh, with Charlie, my youngest, are, right. you know, I feel like we're sort of at our limit. Yeah, mm. which is, is weird to say, I think, because um, people always have, you know, looked at us and were like, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you do it. And, right. and we've always been like, well, it's, it's actually okay. And now mm. we're like, I don't know how we do this. Um, <laughs> so we, we've finally sort of reached that uh, limit, too. And, uh, yeah, like we don't know whether he's going to be able to walk or not, uh, things like that. So it's going to be, that's going to be fairly intense. And having right. nine is, it's a pretty big number uh, anyway. Right. So maxed out uh, our, our car. Um, I have a, a Dodge Sprinter, <laughs> and I already replaced the one seat that was a two seater with a three seater. So there's, there's nothing more I can do to fit more kids in the car. So. <laughs> Okay, fair enough, fair enough. No, that that's fair because, like I said, to 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 the average person uh, listening to this, and you know, I, I told a couple of friends of mine that they're like, you know, what's the thing that sticks out about Jed? I said, well, his professional life would be interesting, but the thing that sticks out personally is that he has uh, nine children, and and the their 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 reaction has been almost universally, wow, that's like a Navy SEAL, right? Because there, <laughs> there are people in the army, and then there are people in the SEAL team who are like extreme parents. Because I'm like. You know, imagine how many lunches you have to make, and how many how many loads of laundry you have to do, and, and how many homeworks you have to help with, and yeah. and it's must be like a constant sprinting marathon, marathon, right? So, 
I mean, hats off to you. I, I, I totally, and you obviously your wife must be an amazing human being to handle all that at all times since you get to quote unquote escape for a few hours during the day while you go to work, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. My, I mean, my wife doesn't like me to say this and, and she is an extraordinary woman. Um, oh, sure. there's, and I was completely like, uh, just blessed by God to be married to her. I didn't make I didn't really make a decision in this except Ooh. for so I guess I should tell some backstory here. Yeah, I think go for this it. This is this is the whole story is crazy. Um, I love it. Uh, actually, this gets into some of the question, you know discussions that you had with people about believing versus you know agnosticism and atheism. So mm-hmm. uh, just set the the scene for this. The the arc of my life story is to me an argument for God in that I can't explain what's happened in my life uh you know it doesn't make sense to me on a human scale so okay uh when i was so i grew up um you know in a pretty conservative home i was you know basically a good kid um i uh you know went to college after high school and um i met my wife she lived on the same hall as me in, mm. in uh, our dorm like uh and her room was like basically right across from mine so okay. it was impossible that i wouldn't meet her um mm. she's you know from so and we were on a hall where there was like probably 20 kids and four kids who were like kind of you know poorer and right put us all together okay i guess to segregate us from the <laughs> <laughs> they, they don't want to take stealing from our roommates or, or whatever the idea was. I don't know. Um, but so it was me and my wife uh, and our roommates. Uh, my roommate was a seven foot tall guy from Ireland uh, who was there on a basketball uh, scholarship. Uh, her wow. roommate was a local Philadelphian. Um, anyway, she's from my wife's from Brooklyn. So I'm from Philadelphia. Okay. She's from Brooklyn. You know, uh, you know, kind of people who keep it real. Um, mm. No BS. Uh, so like right away I was attracted to her cause mm-hmm. it's like, you know, you go to college, there's a lot of kids there who don't necessarily have a lot of life experience. Right. And that's, you know, it's kind of annoying. Um, right. so anyway, I, I was attracted to her right away. We hit it off. Uh, we started dating and then right after Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. uh, I learned that she was pregnant. Okay. So Yeah. Yes, that was uh, not on my plan for my life. Right, right, so right, right. I, you know, I was, uh, I, I was just, you know, then I was like completely despondent and like, oh, my life is over. I can't believe <laughs> I did this. Why would God do this to me? <laughs> on and, you know, on and on. I was, right. you know, I, I stayed in my bed probably for like a day. Um, <laughs> then, uh, you know, I talked, we talked through it. I got up. Um, I talked to my parents, uh, and I felt, uh, <laughs> I felt a really strong, um, sense in my spirit Okay. that we were supposed to, you know, raise this kid together. Okay. Um, and so, you know, that's, I was like, I asked my wife if she'd marry me. Uh, mm. and she said, yes. Um, luckily for you. <laughs> yes. Well, it was also a weird thing. She grew up in, in a sort of a secular uh, culture um, in which, you know, making that decision 
for me, being in that situation was unthinkable. But right. for her, making that decision was unthinkable, like in terms of the way she was raised. So I think okay. it was weird, strange from both of our standpoints to, to have made that but decision. But we made that decision. Um, then I met her mom. You can imagine that was an extremely uncomfortable dinner. Uh, <laughs> and and we ended up getting married the next March over spring break, which probably one of the craziest freshman year spring break stories uh, that you're going to hear. Um, wow. Yeah. And so then, you know, we worked our way through college uh, over three years. She actually took a semester off and graduated in three and a half, some, uh, three and a half years. So uh, mm. once one she which is is also crazy. Um, and we decided then uh, after we graduated, we're going to have another kid. Um, OK. Because I think a lot of people would have been like, okay, we have one kid. Let's get our life together and make sure we have a solid foundation. But we are sort of a – we never think that way. <laughs> You're risk takers. Yeah. Well, it's like, <laughs> look, we could take – it, it's not really that much of a risk. Like if you really mm. look at the risk parameters of that decision, mm -hmm. it's like if we can't make things work, we're already screwed. So <laughs> either we're going to like – wait to actually have a family and then have one kid and then like a separate family later, or we're just going to do this thing. Oh, right, right, that's, right. Okay, okay. That's the decision that we made. Um, okay. So we did that. And so then we said, had, had uh, my daughter Lucy. Then I was, as I was saying, we were having trouble getting pregnant. Now mm. like we're 20, uh, see at that point we would have been like 26 and 25. Okay. And and we decided we were going to be foster parents because we wanted another kid, which okay. is, a, is a terrible decision um, <laughs> to make because, mm -hmm. you know, like if you want to have another kid, you should just you shouldn't you should do adoption because foster care is, you know, oh, usually temporary. It's a very, as again, a very risky decision. And, and right. again, that's a decision that I felt like we were called to. And that's why I did that, because I can't tell you to this day, why I did that. I can't make an argument to you why I did that. That okay. was not, okay. not a good decision. And I don't have a, I don't have a logical defense of it. Okay. Um, so then we did that. And that's our son, Ben. Who, uh, we were able to adopt him, which again, is very unusual circumstance, right? Because right, right, right. Most kids, you know, most people don't just get a kid placed with them and then they adopt that kid uh, the first time. Right. So that was another crazy thing that happened. Um, then, yeah, let me let me pause there and, and see if because uh, I could I could go on and describe this whole story to you, uh, <laughs> but I want to make sure you have time to ask questions or. or no, no. So, so this this is utterly fascinating because I guess, like I said, um, when you're in that situation, right? You uh, once every parent I've spoken with who becomes a parent, the the first thing that dawns upon them is like, well. I've literally crossed this particular threshold where this person is now supposed to outlive me, right? I mean, talk about long-term decision-making. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's an entirely – because most people up, – up until you get to that point in your life, it really isn't like that, right? Everything is kind of like temporal and it's like, okay, well, you know, I'll go to school for four years and then I'll get a job and all that stuff. But this is like, well, I better do a good job with this person because they're supposed to outlast me. And mm -hmm. so you have this little phase shift in terms of how you look at things. Mm -hmm. But what, what what made it curious for me for you is like the are your kids like really closely related like age wise like they're just like you just wait a little bit and have another one or are they like there's like a two three year gap between them 
like how what's the gap situation like and how does that work out in terms of the dynamics of the family okay well, i can you know so we sort of have tranches so okay we have sophie and lucy the two oldest who are um 17 and 14 okay uh then they start to get fast and thick uh okay. you've got ben who's almost 12 you've got hazel who's 10 aaron who is nine Vivi, who is eight, and then you have a little bit of a gap. Judah is five, and then uh, Angelina is two, mm. and Charlie is one. Okay. okay, okay. So it sort of happened every time we adopt. So we've adopted three times. Okay. And every time we adopted, there was like a kid who's like a pair with the kid <laughs> we adopted. Like Ben and right, Hazel, right, right. Aaron and Vivi, and Charlie and Angelina are all like in a, in pairs. I see. I see. Okay. Okay. And so when you go through the adoption process and, and like you said, your, your first time you were, so I guess the way I see it from what you've told me and given the fact that you've done it repeated times is it sounds like a bad idea. And then it turns out to be a great one. As long as you could push through the initial adjustment period, would that be an accurate description? Well, I think adoption is different than foster care. Um, okay. Because when you ad- do adoption, you are pretty sure you're going to have a kid uh, who's going to live with you and they're going to be part of your family forever. Okay. Um, but foster care, it's like somebody's a parents having, you know, not doing a great job. So they get mm. their kid taken away from them. They have to stay somewhere and mm. you don't know what's going to happen. Right. Uh, right and then right, also right. the way the legal system works here, at least is you have no right legal rights or standing as far as, okay situation is so um you can't speak in court uh and your you know the well-being of your family is not part of the process you know sort of makes sense in a way because you're saying you know like this is a kid who needs a place to stay but he's not according to the law he's not part of your family he's waiting to go back to be with his birth family okay okay Um, so that's not as you can imagine that's not a great uh, situation if you're planning on having that kid staying with you for uh, the rest of their life because chances are they won't. Right, right, right. So how uh, long how long do you usually foster a kid for? Like what's that process like and how does all that work? Because it's, it's utterly fascinating to me because we hear about it on like a TV show or a movie, but you don't really actually think about, okay, wait a minute, what's involved? How does this work? Where, who decides what's going to happen? How old are the kids? Do you get to choose which kid is going to come in or you just have an open door policy? Like what's all that about? Would you mind uh, walking us through it? Yeah, yeah, sure. So let me just start this off by like a broad statement about this system, which is okay. not about any of the people in the system because I think there's a lot of good people in the system. But the system by itself has two things that you got to understand. One is it's a system that, first of all, is inherently defined by something that's you know tragic. Things haven't okay. gone the way they should have gone. Right. Because either some kid has not been getting taken care of the way they should have been getting ta- taken care of, or in some cases they were taken away and they shouldn't have been taken away, um, mm. or a parent's died or something like that. So you already start off, it's a messed up situation. Right. And then the other thing about it is, unfortunately, nobody in authority over the situation has any skin in the game. Mm. Um, and kids have no power in the system, really. So that makes it a very difficult you know, uh, system to take part in because right. 
you now have a judge who's making a decision who doesn't necessarily know even have feedback about what the consequences of his decisions are, mm. um, much less you know have any skin in the game about them. And then you have social workers who are overloaded with a lot of work, um, and uh, they don't you know they go home at the end of the day. They're not taking kids home with them, and they're not right. their kids. The right. Thing about parenting is kids are really um on one level they're really annoying you know <laughs> like yep. they need a lot of stuff they make mm -hmm. messes they break mm -hmm. things and mm -hmm. they don't you know contribute a lot unless you train them how right. to uh right. so it's like a kid you know if you put an adult um in a difficult situation they have some ability to advocate for themselves and some standing and worth in society. For a kid, it's like they're vulnerable. There's nothing they can really do. Uh, and right. nobody and, – and you know what? What do we? How do we deal with that as a society? We have parents who irrationally love their kids, right? <laughs> right, ideally. Um, right, yeah, ideally. And that's, that's the way normally it works. We were all kids once who cost our parents initially a lot more than we gave and mm – -hmm. Uh, they loved us and they raised us up and hopefully, you know, we're able to repay that by honoring them and loving them. Um, but for a kid who doesn't have a parent who naturally is in that position, they're very mm. vulnerable. So right. I'm just telling you that because, uh, that a lot of the things that happen in the system don't, um, you know, are pretty messed up right? and, you people look at it from the outside and say, you know, that's terrible and it's tragic and that's all true. Right. But I think that, um, you have to look at it from the beginning of the situation, mm -hmm. not, not look at it as comparing it to a situation in which a kid does have a biological parent who is able and willing to, uh, care for them. Right. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, of course the nuance of it is, is all the difference there. So, yeah, but to answer your question about, like, uh, our personal experience with it, which is not yeah. not normal. Um, okay, okay. We've had, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four foster kids. Okay. Um, we had one who stayed with us for about a week. Okay. But aside from that, we've never had a foster kid who wasn't with us less than two years. Okay. Um, so... We had two situations in which we had uh, Ben and Aaron. We adopted them. Mm -hmm. um, and then we had uh, another kid who stayed with us for two years. I'm not going to say his name. Um, mm. We'll call him Jay, who, who okay. was with us two years from the time he was about six months old to two and a half and then went back to live with his father. Okay. okay. Which was That must have been hard. That was uh, heartbreaking. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, and, and I had a long. It was there was a long time. Uh, so I just put it this: when I was nineteen, mm -hmm. uh, I guess I was eighteen, and I found out that um, my wife was pregnant. I was uh, sort of devastated in a in a uh, a hot way. Right. And then when J Jay went back to live with his dad, I was devastated in a cold way. Right. So it took me a, a long time to sort through that. Um, right. 
I, I was sort of feeling like, hey, uh, I was, I guess I was, I was talking to God and I was saying, hey, we did this thing and we did it to serve you. Um, you know, why did this sort of, why did this happen to us? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, which I mean, to be honest, is a pretty, in some ways it's, it's just a very childish thing to say, uh, Mm -hmm. talking to (laughs) someone who you believe is the the supreme being of the world. But in another sense, that was the way I, I genuinely felt. So I needed, that's the way I needed to work through. Um, Mm. and I don't have a good answer for that. Right. Um, even to this day, but, uh, I also trust that there was a reason for it. Right, 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 right. I mean, I guess, uh, when, when you, when you, like, like I said, this is the type of stuff where, um, people usually tell you the broad strokes of it. Mm -hmm. And as somebody who's, you know, involved in, uh, various activities where I'm like, yeah, from the broad strokes of it, like, oh, you're a software programmer. It must be cool. Sure. Until you get to the nitty gritty details and you realize half of it is just wanting to bang your head into a wall because you can't really solve the particular side of the problem. And in this case, oh, you're a foster parent. That's so cool. Until you hear like, well, the kind of heartbreak that comes with it potentially is beyond words in a way to sort of speak just to as I'm hearing you speak there, I, I can like empathize and feel the pain that you must have experienced through that process. And I'm sure it's not something that'll just go away. So like, like I said, there's always these nuances and people don't really have the perspective on how this particular process works. So I appreciate you sharing that with us. And, you know, I don't want to push you too far in that direction if it makes you, uh, you know, a little uncomfortable, but it, it's actually enlightening for us because like I said, so let's just talk mechanics for a minute. How yeah. does this work? Like, do they just sh- call you and say, Hey, listen, we kind of, you know, you guys have been in the system. You guys do foster care. We need some help. Or, or do you actually actively go to them and say, Hey, is there anybody available that needs some help? So how does the mechanic of all that work? Like, obviously yeah. the nuances of, of the system being, you know, half broken, half better than nothing, all that taken uh, with a grain of salt because we can always make things better. And things yeah. can always, always be worse too, right? People forget that just because yeah. something is bad doesn't mean it can't get worse. Uh, yeah, definitely. And, and it could be a lot worse. But yeah, right. so let me answer that question in, in terms of mechanics is, is there's a way it's supposed to work and there's a way it actually works. Okay. Um. So the way it's supposed to work is you sign up with a foster care provider agency and you tell them your parameters, right? Okay. Of, of what – this is what we all were – the kids that were willing to take and these are the kids that were not willing to take. Okay. Um, and then they uh, – when kids come into the system, they call you if the kid meets that – you know, falls within those parameters and then you say yes or no. Okay. Uh, in practice – there's an information problem where there's a couple of problems. One is that um, the social workers, when they're intaking kids into the system, may not have good information. Mm. So when we didn't say that uh, – and then the other question, problem is that um, you can have a whisper, whisper down the lane situation where you have multiple social workers working uh, on the mm. issue and mm-hmm. they somebody got told something by a doctor and they mistranslate that to a social worker who mistranslates it to another social worker uh you know for instance mm-hmm. um <clears throat> one of our kids uh has uh hemiplegia which okay. means, uh half of your brain um has been affected in some way 
but when that was originally translated to us, it was hemophilia. Oh, uh, uh, so you thought it was a blood problem, right? Right. Well, this is like, yeah, <laughs> we first got the kid. We were like, we didn't know where they were, whether they were staying or whatever was happening. So we were like, they were like, he might have this issue. And we're like, okay. So <laughs> I don't, I'm actually not even sure that that's what happened because okay. I never was able to trace that back down the line. I only okay. know that that was originally what was told to us. And right. then we originally, we, we later found out that he did have hem, hemiplegia. So I put that together and think that was what the mistranslation was, but I have uh, no way of knowing. So the information that you get initially is mm. almost always uh, not good um, in terms of its quality. So right. you can imagine that that means that the filters that you originally gave the agency don't get followed because how could they? The information that's informing <laughs> the filters isn't right. So right. What actually happens in practice is they call you up with kids who fall within a fuzzy boundary range of what you gave them and ask you if you want to take the kid um, because the system always needs more parents, uh, more foster parents who are willing to take kids. Um, right. So right, the one right. thing they, they do kind of respect is they'll respect age limits within like a couple years. So okay. if you're like, hey, uh, we don't want to take kids above three, they might mm. bring you a five-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> and ask if you want to take them, but they're not going to bring you a 14-year-old. Uh, right, right, right. So that's, that's sort of the way it works in the nuts and bolts uh, entry. Um, okay. And then the, the legal issues and the, the visits are a whole whole other story. Mm. I see. I see. So, so I, okay, so let's talk about it from the exit point of view. So when an exit situation is, is being ramped up, so I, I imagine – the particular parent of the child has quote unquote cleaned up their act, so to speak, mm-hmm. in broader mm-hmm. terms. And yep. they're they go and they plead their case and, and the social worker sees that they've made progress and says, Okay, I think you're ready. So does it start with them just getting initial visits or they just immediately go right back into transitions? Like how does that work mechanically? Just so that oh, we yeah. have a, a grasp of it. Yeah, that system is is uh, I think actually relatively sensible. So they have visits. Um, okay. that are just they can have supervised visits where mm-hmm. a social worker's there with them. They can have unsupervised visits where there's not a social worker, but it's still somewhere you know that's a, a safe space. Then they can have uh, unsupervised visits at their uh, home, and then mm. they can have, then they transition to uh, overnight visits. And overnight okay. visits are uh, usually right before um, uh, the kid goes back. Um, okay. And then once you, if that's successful over a, you know, usually a month, a month and a half, then they are going to go to full reunification. I see. And in that time, in that phase, so once, uh, again, pardon my ignorance, but I, I was, I wanted to know. So once the kid goes back, are you allowed to go and visit, or are you supposedly just cut off from the whole process? Like, what's what what happens there? Yeah, no, you're time? you're totally cut off. So really, yeah, it's. It's as if uh, you the the kid's just like a stranger stranger's kid. Wow. Okay. Uh, but you can always come to an arrangement with uh, like obviously you, you get emotionally attached to a kid, but you can always come to arrangements with the parents themselves to become friends and perhaps maintain a relationship, or to just tell you no, cut it off, you're out the door, and forget like it ever happened. Well, yeah. I mean, typically, especially if a kid's been in the system for a while. Right. There's, there's some resentment. 
on the on the part of the parent whose kid's been in the system. I see, I see. So, and it's totally would be have to be voluntary on their behalf whether they want to do it or not, and generally they do not want to do that. Right, right, right. Okay, okay, I understand. Okay, so so how does the transition go from uh, a kid that you're fostering to one that you actually adopt? How does that mechanistically? How does that work? They have to have like a certain amount of time with the kid. There's a kid interviewed, and they got they have to get legal consent from their like guardian of their actual parents. How does all that work out? Well, um, so in order for a kid to be adopted, there has to be a uh, what's called a termination of parental rights or TPR. Okay. okay. Um, and that can either happen voluntarily or involuntarily. Okay. Um, in the foster care system, it generally happens involuntarily. Uh, the general guideline is um and i think this is actually a legal guideline here but it's followed more in breach than in practice that the parent has 18 months to sort of get uh, to the place where they can um reunify with the kid and, and if they haven't done that then they're going to move towards terminating their rights okay. um, for one of our kids that took four years Wh- um, wow how yeah. come how is it what like <laughs> that makes no sense yeah, uh, I don't know how I can explain it. I, I mean, because there's, there's not really any way to explain it. Uh, the judge, uh, I guess in that situation, the it took that long for the judge to feel that the parents weren't going to get into a condition where they were going to take responsibility for themselves. I guess mm. that's the way I would put it. Mm. I see. Um, okay. And so then when that happened, and then there's, it's, 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 I'm not going to go into all the details because there's a lot of stuff that went on, but right. the judge sort of over time sees the, the craziness right. and says, you know, this is not a healthy situation. Is, is what, right. That's what happened in that situation. So right. when you're a foster parent over that period of time and you see more of – so you see what condition the kid is when they, they come into your home, right? Right. So and you, you see hopefully the improvement after they've been staying with you. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So that gives you an idea of what's happened beforehand. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you also um, take the kid to visit. Right. So then you see the kid interacting with his parents. So you see how that dynamic is. Mm. So obviously you're going to have a point of view. Right. Of course. Um, but that point of view is not expressed or expressible legally. Uh-huh. So you're sort of, you know, you're praying that things are going to go a certain way, but you have no power to influence the process. Um, I see. So you're hoping that the judge is going to come to a point of a point where he sees, you know, the reality of what's going on. Right, right, right. Oh, but, I understand. Yeah. So then, he, anyway, when that happens, then the kid is is up for adoption. And generally, if you're fostering the kid, they're going to let you adopt them if you want to adopt them. Hmm. Um, because they don't want to like have further dislocations for the kid. The kid's established uh, bonds with your family. So then that process is um, – it, it's just an administrative process. You fill out paperwork and so on, and it takes usually about a year. Um, but there's no real decision-making in that process. It's if, if you have – a home that is viable for the kid, which you have to have because they're already in your home. And mm. um, 
you know, you jump through these these hoops, then you can uh, adopt them. Okay, good, good uh, overall. I guess like it's like I said, it's your your your. We have like a sketch of what these things might be like, but you're kind of shading it in for us, so we have, and hopefully our listeners can have a greater appreciation for what is involved emotionally and 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 me- mechanistically and obviously legally. Because at the end of the day, we always want the best for the for the for the kids involved because it, you know nobody deserves that. Yeah. Okay. So you fostered several times. What makes you want to continue fostering? So I'm gonna answer that question. Okay, I'll answer the question this a couple of ways. Because when we first started fostering, um, like I, I as I said before, I can't give you an explanation of why we did it. Um, hmm. The s- second time we fostered with uh, Jay, um, he was our second foster kid. We had a really good experience with Ben. And we felt like, hey, Ben had been in a bad situation. We were able to help him. Um, and he was just a great kid. Uh, mm. You know, he's a great kid now. Um, he's such a, a joy and a blessing. You know, we wanted to do it again. Mm. Um, so then, but then with Jay, when he went back, uh, we didn't foster for a little while. Um, but then... And then, yeah, when we, I think it was in the middle between um, Ben and Jay coming that we fostered uh, for just a week. That was not really, didn't really make an impact on us or the family. Um, it was just something that, were, that happened. Um, but then after Jay, we felt like, you know, I was talking to my wife about it and she was, you know, she was encouraging me in it. And uh, she was like, well, why, you know, wouldn't you do it? Right? Mm. And I was like, I was like, because it hurts, you know. <laughs> right. Um, but then, you know, after I, you know, said that to her, and I was, I was praying about it. I felt like, I felt like, that wasn't a good reason. Right. Like God was telling me, you know, that's true. It it does, but you should still do it anyway. Right. Because, right. Yeah. I mean, in our religion. You know, I'm a Christian. We believe in a in a suffering God, mm. so we believe that God suffered suffered for us and suffers with us. Right. And so what that means for us is that we're also called to suffer for others. Right. Um, right. Right. Is it so, you're sort of like you're across the bear? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, I I could see. So like I said, like our our point of view on that front. Uh, it's been an evolving one because, um, as you may recall from our conversation with uh, Gordon and Alex, there's a there's there's a there's a transition, and that's where I was going to get to next for you. Is like as you said, you sort of fell into your faith in in, in a way, from what I gather, based mm-hmm. on your life experiences. And so, how does that inform the way you? So, is did, did your faith inform the way you live now, or the way you live now informed your faith, so that one led to the other, or are they in like a a tightly coupled uh, scenario where they basically feed off of each other. Cause you go from a kid who was in dorm room and you know, you, you experienced, uh, I think you said you wanted to become a financial advisor. Was that what it was? <laughs> yeah. Well, I actually so, did uh, okay. didn't work out so well. So, so yeah. So tell us about all that. How did all that make uh like, how did all that tie together? Because this right. angle of your, of your life is you know, utterly fascinating and my yeah. deepest respect for, for what you do. And obviously your wife is an incredible human being who could do. I probably couldn't last. You guys should uh, have had her on. Hours. Honestly, I, you know what? <laughs> We'd be, we would be happy to have her on. But um, honestly, I, like I, I, I can't imagine myself doing. 
you know, just making breakfast for that many kids that she probably does every day without even thinking about it. So hats off on all fronts to, to your wife for that, because, man, um, but you, I can at least have some level of conversation with because I can somewhat uh, emotionally, you know, uh, empathize. So so let's let's walk through your process here. How did you yeah. go from, uh, you know, where did the, the, the faith kick in and how did you, uh, uh, you know, find the quote unquote uh, financial planning situation? How did that work out in the opposite direction? And how did you lead? How did all of that lead to? bankruptcy because then we could transition to what it is you currently do yeah sure sure um so i grew up uh in the church um but i guess when i when i first like went to college i was like uh i guess i felt tired of it so i wouldn't say i didn't believe um but i just was like "Eh, i don't want to you know i guess the way i would put it is i was like i felt like i don't want to be good anymore this is, you know, uh, so, um, I decided I, I was going to do what I wanted to do. Um, and then, you know, when, uh, when we got married and my daughter was, was born, you know, that sort of, that whole situation really made me feel, I guess I felt at that point, like, um, like if you read the Old Testament when people like make covenants with God where it's like, you know, God, if God's like, if you follow me, you know, I'll be faithful to you. I sort of felt like that that was kind of what happened at that point. Like I felt a strong sense that it was like, this is a crazy thing that I'm doing, but I feel like I'm called to do it. Not like crazy in, in the terms that, you know, it's, it's very risky. Uh, most marriages that happen at that age don't work out. Like, the statistics on whether or not we should still be together after um, 18 years are terrible. Um, right. But I felt like, okay, if – I felt like I was being told if, if you're faithful, um, you know, if to, that God was telling me if you're faithful to me, I'll be faithful to you. And God's right. faithfulness is worth a lot more than mine. So, um, right. So I felt like that's what happened and then um, – after college, I felt, you know, I wanted to become a financial advisor. It was, it was not, it was a dumb decision in terms of I didn't really know what I was getting into. Because uh, I, I found the subject fascinating. And, um, but it's mostly a sales job. Right. Um, which, you know, I'm more analytical than salesy. Okay. So anyway, but to, to I spent two years trying to make that work, which was probably a year and a half longer than I should have. <laughs> um, okay. But I'm, you know, I have an ability to be stupidly tenacious mm. when um, I have, you know, my mindset on something. So anyway, the way I got out of that is another sort of, you know, unlikely circumstance. So it's, to me, uh-huh. it's all the unlikely circumstances. I put them together. I'm like, okay, all these things that happened could just be coincidences. Like my us getting pregnant with my daughter one month after my son, uh, you know, came to live with us from right. uh, foster care. Right. It's like, okay, that could be a coincidence, but but how many coincidences need to stack up before you say, are these really all coincidences? So this right. other coincidence was I was trying to sell a 401k to the owner of the company that I work for now. Okay. Uh, and he offered me a job. <laughs> okay. 
So this okay. was like when I was probably, I don't know. I, I was in a lot of debt from my standpoint then. From my standpoint right. now, there was not much debt. But right. I was like, right. I didn't have any money. So right. uh yeah, any 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 amount of debt is a lot of debt then. Um Right. So when you don't have any in your reality. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um so th- I was, you know, that's that's basically how I went bankrupt was those two years of trying to become a financial advisor and making no money. So right. I was like, you know, basically financing, living off of debt, trying to make it work and then making a little bit of income, but nowhere near enough as much I needed to live. So mm. then I took this job not knowing anything about what I was mm. doing. The, the company is an energy company um, mm. uh, and uh, we do a bunch of uh, stuff, but when I was initially hired, I didn't really have, I didn't even have a job. It was just like, you know, I think you're a smart guy and I think that we could use you. The company was growing. So I spent mm. like the first month just reading energy books. Okay. Um, and wondering why they were paying me. My wife called me up like the first <laughs> time I got a paycheck and was like, they actually, they paid you? Cause I was on commission before. And she was like, are they gonna, are they gonna keep paying you? And I was like, I, I mean, I guess. She was like, what are you wow. doing? What? Uh, so anyway. I know a lot of people, you know, you, you have a salary job and you sort of expect your paycheck to come, but that was a new thing for me. So, um, that's, yeah, that's how I felt about it. Anyway, I, I went from that to doing, I was doing a bunch of stuff in the company. I was doing retail bills for large uh, customers. So it was basically just taking some, taking someone's usage and contract structure and cooking it up into their bill, uh, every month. Okay. Um, okay. then I transitioned, I did that for probably about, a year and then in about six yeah about uh, i don't know eight months in or something i got involved with taking a very a large um electrical cooperative um mm. and integrating it into the wholesale market so uh trying to figure out how to explain what that means um yeah <laughs> <laughs> no because i was going to ask you like uh, for for most of us and and this is what i found interesting was that we take energy and electricity so for granted that the only time we notice it is when it's not working but yep. we have no clue as to where it started how it gets distributed what the business model looks like what the competitors in the business are doing why would anybody be in that business if there's like there, it seems like everything is behind this fancy curtain and inside obviously there's an insane amount of complexity involved. There's a lot of, um, you know, smart people figuring out different ways to capitalize on, uh, you know, their, their returns on that particular business. So for us, if you can just kind of give us, I've read some of your posts that you put it on, on media about it. So that's where it got me sort of interested because it's, it's sort of similar. Yesterday I had this conversation with, uh, with a friend of mine who's actually a chartered accountant. And for me, in the, for the most time, I'm like, okay, you're an accountant. You, you look at spreadsheets and that's basically like, what, what can you possibly be doing? And then he sort of said, okay, if you really want to learn, I can show you what a day in my life looks like. So mm-hmm. I said, yeah, you know, enlighten me. Tell me what, what your, a day looks like in your world. And he said, okay, well, first of all, there's sampling and subsampling of, of audits and reviews. And he's explaining a lot to me. And I'm just listening to this. I'm like, this sounds like an engineering project a lot more than it does an accounting project because you're essentially looking for anomalies to detect whether there's truth or falsehood being uh, hidden under the rug here. He goes, essentially... Most of accounting on a professional level at the highest level is basically forensic accounting. And in that case, you're essentially looking for people doing things that they shouldn't be doing when they're telling you X when they're actually really doing Y. And so what we do is we become detectives and we're basically in search of the actual patterns. And he goes, and imagine you get a company that's worth, you know, 1.2 billion. 
and you're told, okay, we're going to audit this company and we're given a hundred million dollar business to, to go over for a period of like a week and you're looking at a, a year's worth of data for a hundred million dollars because there's no way you can actually figure out uh, where the, the fraud happened, but you have to have some level of symptoms to, systems to go after it. So as he's explaining all this to me and I just realized, I said, wow, the, the kind of work you do is very fascinating now that because the, the, the notion of accounting has always been such a, a character a caricature of it. When you see it on TV, it's just some dude with a pocket protector yeah. and glasses and socially awkward. So as he was explaining that to me and I immediately thought to myself, wait a minute, when I speak to Jed, it's going to be the same thing because what's going to happen is everybody thinks, what's the big deal? You're just sending electricity over a wire to my house, right? But obviously there's a lot more involved. So I want to give you sort of like a... a a, a jump-off point to sort of explain to, to people where does this stuff come from, how does it all get managed, what's the complexities involved, and how quickly can they uh, m- make a miscalculation and lose their shirt? Because I'm sure running that business is not uh, one of those businesses where it's like a, a premium model where you're making an exorbitant amount of, of profit or it's not a luxury good because the thing basically has a shelf life. So how does all that, like, just fill us in in terms of what does a day look like when you walk into the office and what your understanding of that business is overall so that the rest of us, because uh, right now it's ironic, uh, uh, Ember is actually at one of our offices at work and they have a power outage there because they're doing some maintenance. So she's kind of uh, running her entire operation off a of battery right now. Yeah, it's so much fun. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so nothing, I will yield the floor. Nothing I say is going to be particularly helpful to you, Ember. But, uh, um, well, first let me say, I think this, the, this is going to be a lot less satisfying than, uh, hearing an accountant talk about what they do. Um, (laughs) because I think there's a real, uh, I guess what I call a green lumber problem in my, my line of work where like if you talk to most people who are energy, you know, like nerds, quote unquote, on like Twitter about stuff that they're interested in, like mm-hmm. most of that stuff has no commercial value. Okay. Um, because the, most of the stuff that I've found that has commercial value is in little niches of knowledge that you can exploit in various ways to make, uh, make some premium off of just knowing how to do things in an administrative way, I guess, or, or a market rule way, or okay. understanding where gaps are in the market that you can fill. Okay. Um, but those don't have much to do with the fundamentals of how the market works or the way the market should work. Okay. Uh, so let me tell you how uh, – I'll just – give you a schematic understanding of the way the, the uh, market does work. Okay. Um, so the market's basically, and this is on the supply side, Okay. Uh, is basically broken down into three pieces. Uh, generation. So that's okay. where someone either is turning fuel um, or sunlight or wind uh, or, you know, water flowing into electricity. Um, and then there's transmission which um, you know transmits that over a high voltage system to uh, a load, and the load okay. uh, can be connected directly to the transmission system. In which case, um, it's just that's it's only really a two part uh, system. It's generation and transmission. But in in most cases, there's also a distribution system. Okay. Which is usually some sort of radial 
low voltage system that the transmission system brings the power to. And then that, as you know, the word says, it steps it down in voltage and distributes it to homes and businesses. Okay. Um, so <laughs> traditionally, all of those things have been owned by the same entity, which is called a utility. Okay. Um, but in the last 20 years, uh, approximately, we've had a, um, a lot of what is called deregulation of the market. Okay. Which can mean various things. In the most, it's a very loaded term. Yes, it is a very loaded term because the degree to which things are deregulated is highly variable. Um, mm. There's some regions in which I would say the only thing that's really deregulated is a wholesale clearing price, um, but all of the ownership essentially remain the same. Mm-hmm. And then there's some regions where all of <clears throat> the generation uh has been um divested to merchant operators and uh retail competitive retail suppliers are responsible for selling um supply plans to customers uh and the only things that are owned by utilities are the distribution systems and then there's also transmission owners Um, okay so what what that has meant so I work mostly in those quote unquote deregulated markets. Okay. Um, but most of the niches that exist for uh, me have been in the way that the rules are set up for those deregulated markets. Um, okay. So in the most deregulated market, probably the most deregulated market in the world um, is, uh, although there's, there could be something I don't know about, but I'm pretty sure this is the case. Would be ERCOT, which is the um, Texas market. Okay. Um, and there, you know, electricity prices on an hourly basis can go up to uh, $10,000 a megawatt hour, which, um, you know, that means that, uh, so a light bulb that burns um, 100 watts, that's a, I'm not going to do the math here on while I'm on, <laughs> but essentially that's a uh, hundred times as much as a high price. Uh, oh, I see. Okay, so it's as, way out of range. It's way out of range. So an average price where we're, would be thirty dollars a megawatt gotcha. hour, and the price gotcha. can go up to ten thousand. And wow. they they have no reliability pricing. So in a region, you know, I live in in PJM, which is the uh, Mid Atlantic region. And this is the same in PJM, New York, New England, the Midwest. They have uh, what's called a capacity market. So okay. the, the energy market on an hourly basis is priced differently than the capacity market, which is uh, a fixed price that you pay for being available or you're okay. paid for being available. Okay. And in that case, most of the fixed cost for generators is supposed to be paid by the reliability market and – the marginal cost of energy is supposed to be paid in the energy market on a daily basis or hourly basis. Okay. So in that case, the energy price is supposed to, you know, is capped probably, I mean, in PJM, I think it's, it's theoretically capped now at, uh, I think in the most extreme situations, it could theoretically go up to $4,000, but that might even be a little high in practice. In practice, it just doesn't spike up that high. 
Okay. Um, because of the reliability pricing and, and some of the ways that the, the energy market clears, um, it's not a scarcity type market. It's a reliability type market. Got um, it. Okay. But what, you, what happens when you have a reliability market is you don't know exactly what the price should be for reliability, right? Right, right. Nobody's telling you, it's not based on someone telling you, hey, I want this much reliability and I'm willing to pay this much for it. It's based on an administrative concept. Um, so people, so that gets priced by regulators, and when regulators price things, there's always dislocations. And if you can figure out what some of those dislocations are better than other people, um, sometimes you, you arbitrage. Yeah. I see. I see. Okay. So, so I mean, it's it's fascinating in the sense that you look at it because I was wondering, like, so if Texas is basically almost like quote unquote to to borrow a cliche like the Wild West. How do they how do they maintain uh, any semblance of sanity down there? Because all I could think about as we're speaking about this is Enron, right? Because yep. I remember that documentary, yeah. and I, I remember yeah. people getting outages and, and hospitals are losing electricity. And since nobody's quote unquote regulating this, and it's a very unregulated market, how do they maintain any semblance of business? Because if, if part of you're doing like, and I'll give you an example from my world, right? So in my world. I work at a telecom and we provide internet and, and um, uh, cell phone service and whatnot. And for businesses to do their job, they need us to never be a problem. Like if, if, if they okay. know what we're up to, they yep. can't do business because they can't process transactions or they're not getting cell signal and they lose their, they literally yep. lose their minds. Right. So I can only imagine how much that would be much more impactful if they lost electricity because they just literally couldn't afford it because the price swing went up so fast over an hourly rate. So how do they, so this gets into specifically what I do. I do okay. something called demand response, which actually is, is probably a bit different than it is in telecom because okay. you don't likely have customers who are who are like, you know what, if you pay us 10 bucks an hour, we'll just get off your system, right? Mm. right and right, and right. that might not even be useful to you. I, I don't even know if that would be helpful if you did have customers like that because um, it may be all or nothing in your industry. Um, right. But in my industry, uh, customers have a marginal demand for energy, right? Right, like, right, right. You have a, a giant steel um, smelter, right? And yep. they you know, may use as much power as you know, 80,000 homes or something like that. Um, but for them, you know, they're only willing to pay $75 a megawatt hour. And if right. the price goes above that, they say, hey, you know what? We're gonna shut down today, and we're make we'll make steel tomorrow because we just can't make uh, we can't make a margin if if that's what how much it costs. Right. Um, right. So, what I do is I take um, customers who are willing to do that. Right. And I get them paid by the grid, or I get them savings depending on the market construct in their particular geographical area. But I take their willingness to modify their usage. And I help them monetize it in whichever way is most advantageous for them. Okay. Um, so that, you know, it's a truly a, my goal is to be able to enable it to be a two-sided market. Okay. Okay. So um, how would they, so how, would, so I, I run a, a factory and I'm, I'm willing to pay $75 per uh, hour for the Watts and yep. the energy company comes to me and says, Hey, uh, for the next four or five uh, uh, hours, it's going to be probably $4,000. And I say, okay, at that level, I'm off. So I'm sh I'm sending my workers home. I'm obviously an unhappy customer because I can't run my business. You call me 
And what are you offering me at this point that I would that I would like? How am I? I'm trying to figure out where the benefit for me is in that conversation with you. Yeah, so it depends um, okay. on the region, but I'll okay. just tell you a couple of different ways it works. Okay. One way would be on uh, the energy, right? Okay. So if if I say, hey, look, if you shut down whenever the price gets to seventy five dollars, yep, I'll pay you sixty dollars a megawatt. Oh, so you're giving me an alternative resource, is what you're saying to me here. Okay, you're, you're, is that what you mean? Because, because that's the part where I'm kind of confused. Saying, no, no, no. That... I'm saying I'll pay you cash money. Oh, okay, to okay. To shut okay. down. So, okay, okay, okay. I see. So that's okay, go on. that's that's basically the simplest way it works. Is megawatt for megawatt, I'll pay you money, you know, cash on the barrel to shut down if prices okay. get to some point that we both agree on. Price. Okay. 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 Um, then that's that's like an energy program, right? So you're okay. benefiting the grid by letting there be more energy than there otherwise would be, and mm-hmm. so you get money. Right. Uh, there's other cases of that where you just sort of agree beforehand. The customer says, you know, if prices get up to, you know, let's say 250 or something like that, I'm shutting down because mm. uh, I can't afford it. And in that case, you're not doing much for them except you're you're letting them know what the price is, maybe giving them right. some you know, telemetry, some information to their control center so that they have the price at their fingertips. And sometimes you do price forecasting or something like that to give them a little, you know, heads up. But you're, you're not paying them money. You're just helping them uh, react to the, what happens in the market. Got it. But that Got both it. happens on the energy side. The reliability side is different in that you're, you're getting an agreement that basically if the grid goes into an emergency type situation. Yeah. Is, defined in the tariff, then you will shut down. Mm. So most likely that means that customer won't have to do anything because usually mm. the grid doesn't go into an emergency situation. Right. But right, if right, the right. grid does go into an emergency situation, you must be available to shut down. And if you don't, you're going to be penalized to some degree. I see. I see. So so to, to rewind the, the tape back a little bit, so you're paying me 60 while the market rate is 75 and you're and we've come to that agreement. Now how are you making money off of this deal? Like are your is your job to adjust the demand uh, side of the equation so that prices can go back to normal? Is that why you're making me this offer for 60 in our previous example? No, I don't care. I'm not the grid. So okay. I don't care if things go back to normal. Uh, actually, okay. it, you know, if I have any incentive, it would be for things to go higher uh, because then we'd both make more money. Okay. But I don't have any power over it. So, okay. you know, it's a situation where I'm a supplier and my incentive is for the price to go higher. But by taking the action I do, I make the price go lower. Okay. Okay. Um, because I'm, I'm making these assets available to the grid, which means that the – so the grid works like any other market in the sense that it dispatches the least cost unit. Right. So right. if I – make a uh, facility available to reduce their usage as opposed to dispatching a generator, then you avoid mm-hmm. a higher, you're, you're by definition avoiding a higher cost unit. Right. Um, right, right, right. So then it, I make a margin. So the grid is going to pay me the market price right. for a customer shutting down. Gotcha. And then I'm going to pay the customer something else. Right. And I'm going to make the difference between those two. 
Got it, got it, got it. So so essentially, if I and, and please correct me if I'm wrong. So the overall grid has a, a capacity and, 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 a, and a quote unquote quota to produce a certain amount of energy per day. And all of a sudden there's a fluctuation because in one region something is happening where there's an uncontrolled amount of people being, you know, whatever it is they're doing, they're manipulating the system to get the prices to go up. You come along and you say, hey, customer who's being impacted by this, I will pay you 60 even though it's at 75. So in case you're shutting down, at least you're making something. And now that extra capacity that was being used by you is available to the grid, which means that it dissipates and gets distributed somewhere else, and it kind of evens itself out. Did I understand that correctly, or am I yeah. way off base? No, no, that's 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 the way it works. Uh, although I would say, like generally, um, only ten percent of the market is at maximum is willing to do this. Right. So it doesn't have such a great. The market is not two sided enough for this to make a big impact okay so it's not at equilibrium yet whereas so you can still have opportunities for massive arbitrage because it's not fully efficient in that regard in the old school market efficiency type of uh, point of view there's still room for this to work because not very many people are, are participating yeah I, yeah i suppose that's um i don't but know I would imagine if, if no because i'd imagine if i'm a business owner and my job is to, let's say, I run a, a power plant of some, not a power plant, sorry, a, a factory that makes, I don't know, chairs or biscuits or whatever. Yep. I'm quite upset right now that I can't make my my, my chairs or my biscuits. Yep. 100%. The, the 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 minor fifty sixty dollars that you're gonna pay me for this is is basically uh, pennies uh, yeah. in a bucket for the amount of money I'm losing for not being yeah. able to run my business, right? Yeah. So yeah. so how do those guys how do those guys in those regions protect their business from this level of volatility and how how often does this business get that volatile to the point where uh, this even becomes an issue? Because for the vast majority of us, and like you know, right now with Ember being uh, at, at Rogers, we're thinking about it is you know we have this big campus, lots of electricity flows through it. You know, there's lights, there's uh, iPads and computer screens, and you know, heating and air conditioning and all the other stuff that goes on. And we never really think about okay, what's the cost of all of this, and how much of it is fixed, and how much of it is variable. And when we say variable. How much variability within the variable is there? Like, is it going to yeah. shoot through the roof and go two, three times as much? And when it does go that far, how long does it stay that? Like, so, yeah. so all that's utterly fascinating because as you're explaining this to me, I'm starting to get my my gears are sort of grinding in that yeah. direction. Yeah, I'm trying so, to extrapolate some value from that. So yeah, there's a lot of questions in there, but uh, I think it's important to understand that there's intermediaries in this market, right, who take okay. on that risk for most of the customers. So okay. most customers are buying a fixed price product from the market okay. and somebody else is taking a risk within a certain volumetric parameters of that load. So if you're running a factory, right, and you have, let's say, $800 a megawatt hour marginal value for, or let's, I mean, let's make it, say you're running a semiconductor factory, right? Yeah. Have, maybe you have a, a $50,000 per megawatt hour value on electricity. Right. Yep. So you're yep. you're never shutting down. No. But no. you still don't want to necessarily have your budget exposed to a ten thousand dollar price. No, of course not. So you lay that price off to a supplier. I mean, you lay that risk off to a supplier. Okay. And they're going to hedge your load cost in the open market and give you a fixed price contract. So every gotcha. megawatt hour you buy will maybe be. $50 a megawatt hour, but they pay the grid on average 
let's say, $40 a megawatt hour, but they're exposed to the price spikes and you're not. Right, right. And at what level can they handle a spike before they they are tapped out? Does that even happen or is that just oh, a, it happens, a theoretical? Yeah, it happens. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it happens regularly. Okay. So last big uh, – so the last big thing that happened was in Texas this summer. Prices spiked up uh, – I think I'm not sure what the highest price was. I'm, I you know I was watching it at one point when it up to, went up to 2,500. Um, but there was a bunch of days in Texas where you had really high pricing this this uh, summer. Uh, I don't think anyone's been bankrupt for that. But back in 2014, if you remember the polar vortex. Yes, I do. Unfortunately, uh, polar vortex was huge in the electricity world because. It caused a whole redesign of some of the reliability market constructs, and also a handful of companies went out of business because mm. some of them just they couldn't handle the cash flow. It right. wasn't the risk that took them out in terms of of uh, the uncertainty of the pricing. It was the fact that they couldn't bill their customers until you know a month behind when they got billed, and they just couldn't handle it. Okay. Okay. I see. So that that's that's you know when you hear this stuff out like I, I just remember two instances where electricity was a big deal. One was I think around 2008 where there was like massive outage for like three days all across like uh, Ontario and I think even New York was affected. That whole northeastern grid, I believe. I'm, I may have the dates wrong. I apologize, but there was that. And then there, I remember the polar vortex time. Um, everything was you know insanely disrupted because you you couldn't turn on enough things to warm up the houses mm-hmm. and everywhere you went everybody had everything on at full blast just to to not feel the bone in their uh, the, the 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 bone chilling temperatures so what happened during that big northeastern outage what is is the grid all over is it connected almost everywhere or are there disparate parts that actually are autonomous so in case there's because i would imagine considering the cold war and everything else between that they can't be all interconnected they may so, be somewhat decoupled, but I hope they're not like tightly coupled. So if one goes down, the whole system goes down. Yeah. So I'm gonna um, uh, creatively not a- answer this question. Okay. I didn't get into the industry until 2007, and I think that Northeast blackout happened in 2006. So I don't know. I know something about it, but not that much. Um, okay. But to answer your question, the second part of your question, it is relatively tightly coupled within regions. The regions can be okay. quite quite large. So okay. um, Texas, for instance, is not connected to the rest of the United States and its grid, uh, which okay. is an interesting quirk because that also means that it's not subject to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission's jurisdiction. So rules they make for everybody else don't apply in Texas. Okay. Uh, but, you know, for instance – the north, entire northeast of the United States is pretty tightly coupled and up into Canada. Mm. Um, right. Sent, uh, from an engineering perspective, it's, it's one grid. So what okay. has to happen there in order to stop um, blackouts from, uh, from spreading is that some operator has to make a decision to throw a switch to decouple. Mm. Okay. Uh, and that's that's, you know... That's human judgment. It, it makes – when that happens, it prevents the part of the grid that's still up from supporting the part of the grid that's failing. Okay. But it preserves the part of the grid that's not failing. Right. So, I mean, that's uh, you know the kind of decision-making that I am glad that I don't have to make. 
Um, <laughs> but it's it's pretty difficult. And this actually gets to a question um, somebody I think wanted to talk about, which was like, what is an anti-fragile grid? Yes. Um, and I think that that question already is going um, a step too far. Okay. Because so they get, this gets into this. Uh, I got into thinking about this because there's this big push to create a resilient grid. Which, right. Uh, basically, what people meant by that was like, well, we want uh, generators to have fuel on site for a certain period of time. We want to put power lines, you know, underneath the ground. We want to make sure that, uh, you know, we're really got a lot of redundancy built into the system on a wholesale grid level to make sure the wholesale grid doesn't go down. Right. Um, and I think a lot of that drive was because of certain generation owners whose business model was failing wanted people to spend a lot of money uh, so that they could make a profit. Okay. And so that got me thinking, okay, we've got this idea of a resilient grid, but it's not really exactly what we want as a society, right? Okay. We want a society that is anti-fragile to grid failure, not right. a grid that's anti-fragile. Okay. okay. We Why can't we have both? Well, maybe we can, and I think actually working towards one works towards the other. Okay. Because when you talk about resiliency, what they really mean is that we want a grid that never fails, right? All right, right, right. But right, we right. know that what you really want is a grid that fails all the time and that you learn from when it fails and that you're not hurt when it fails. Right, 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 right. The, the way it's constructed now with a reliability model is that it's designed to never fail. Right. And when it um, fails, it fails huge. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So you suppress all the volatility and it shows up all at once. Um, right. So the way that I think about this and my particular bent, especially being customer focused, mm -hmm. is what you want is a grid that has a lot of distributed assets. Right? So right. instead of putting all your money into hardening transmission lines and paying generators to stockpile fuel – you incentivize people in local areas to build generation that takes care of their key needs. Mm -hmm. um, so let me give you a, a thought experiment for this that I think is a good example. Go for it. So like okay. if you had a situation in which half the country loses power, all right? Yep. Yep. Would you rather it be every other county or the entire west of the country or the entire east of the country? Obviously, every other county, so at least there's some semblance of power somewhere. Right. So you can get to a hospital, you know, yep. you can get Emergency fresh care, food, food so yep. forth, water. So, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you don't mm -hmm. want to keep the whole wholesale grid operating. You want to keep key services operating. Yes. Um, yes. That, you know, to, most avoid, to avoid panic, right? Because second order effects would be if everything mm -hmm. is down and people panic, now you have a different set of problems with riots and stuff too, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Go on. Yep. Exactly. So, I mean, I don't necessarily want the grid at a wholesale level to fail all the time. Um, and it's not, it's not clear to me how we get exactly from where we are now to where uh, I want to be, especially since in many areas of the country, we're so overbuilt at a mm -hmm. wholesale level. Like we have uh, close to 30% um, reserve margins in this region, which mm. means 
we have 30% more generation than we anticipate really ever needing. <laughs> um, so, you know, that means that the chances now things can happen. So that 30% is a ghost number. It's not reality. Right. Um, things could definitely happen that either mean those reserves aren't available when you need them or the, the demand is higher than you anticipated. And that's sort of what happened in 2014 to cause real problems. But mm. having said that, that the fact that the structures that have made it be 30% higher necessarily, you know, and maybe that's only 20% because you do want to have some reserve margin. Um, right. The fact that have made it that high have also disincentivized people to build things at a local level. Gotcha. Gotcha. Because um, there's always somebody out there giving you something anyway. Why bother building one on your own? Right. Okay. But the flip side of that is some of the charges that incentivize that 30%, mm -hmm. people can, uh, can get rid of if they build their own local assets. Right, so right, right. That's that's what I try to do. It, to some extent, what I'm I'm very excited about doing is creating structures that sort of create an end around to get people out from under the obligation of paying for assets that aren't efficient, that they don't want, and using that money instead to pay for local assets that probably mm. do have a better, uh, more of a benefit for them, and allow mm. them to not pay money to, um, you know. Some moneyed interest who's who's extracting wealth from the system through regulatory arbitrage. Oh, right, right, right. So, so in that regard, so I have like you know two questions for you uh, in this direction. One is how's all this uh, current, um, uh, what do you call it, the the current uh, mania, so to speak, about climate change, and how does that affect the electricity in, industry? Because I imagine, uh, you know, they're basically at the forefront of it all because. The way they generate electricity um, almost always is going to be a conversation around the uh, carbon footprint. So yeah. are they making changes in that direction? And I imagine these people have skin in the game at the proper levels that whatever changes they make would be uh, decisions that are based on, uh, you know, cold, hard fact engineering requirements versus political point scoring. Or is there some of that included as well? That's such a hard question. Uh, <laughs> what do you think this was going to be, man? <laughs> Uh, it's, it's, I don't, I don't, uh, it's hard to know where to begin. Let me, so there's a lot of theories, um, okay. around this that okay. drive decision-making okay. and the problem as I see it is none of the theories are realized yet. So... Okay. Uh, so we have a huge amount of incentives that go towards renewable energy, um, solar, uh, wind, um, mm -hmm. and in some states we have mandates for those. Um, okay. And in theory, you could create a all-renewable grid that ran off of solar, wind, and storage. Mm -hmm. um, however, with the current price of storage, uh, that is extremely expensive. Okay. Um, but so one of the theories is, well, the price of storage is going to come down the way the price for solar has come down, and then it all become manageable. Okay. Is that true? Is it not true? I don't know. Then okay. a theory that layers on top of that is coal. Uh, so um, China is on target to have 
900, I think, gigawatts of coal capacity by 2030, which okay. is about not, uh, let's see, six times as much as the U.S. has wow. currently. And, <laughs> I mean, think about anything we do in terms of carbon reduction versus mm-hmm. that sort of <laughs> capacity of, of coal generation. Right. Um, That's just coal. It's not even right. counting the rest of the stuff they're doing. Right. Like, you mm-hmm. can't address one without the other. Of so course. another another theory that exists is we're going to create a model in countries that are investing in climate change uh, remediation. Uh, we're going to invent a model through research and regulatory um, innovation that's going to be exportable to places where they're building coal generation because we're just going to make it so cheap and good that they'll want to do it too. Right. Uh, right, right, right. Is that going to happen? I mean, no. I find it extremely implausible, but it's a theory <laughs> that drives decision-making and action in this market. So I find it a really weird market for myself to operate in because okay. um, this is a weird uh, – I, I think strangely, so I'll just explain it to you in the way that I think. I think okay. about myself operating the world as just okay. – as one unit among many units. But right. so when I see everybody who's working on climate change, mm-hmm. um, I say there's a lot of smart people who are already working on this. Mm-hmm. So, and it's not, so it's not something I'm particularly passionate about. I'm much more passionate about distributed energy. Right. Um, right, right, right. Because I feel like that's a crowded, crowded thing. And there's not as many people who have the perspective as I have on distributed energy. So, right. When I look at everybody who's working on this and they actually have jobs in it, but they're mm-hmm. also ideologically passionate about it, mm-hmm. I'm not – it's difficult to know what the clarity of decision-making is. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, oh. I think in some cases it's, it's very muddled. In some cases right. it may be clear. But for me, distinguishing mm-hmm. between those is almost impossible. Right. No, I understand because given your natural inclination that when everybody's zigging, you're zagging for everybody not having kids, you have nine. Clearly, you're going to be the person who's going to look for opportunities in spots where nobody else is looking. So with that, the next question that comes to mind from our uh, listeners is what, what do you make of the Tesla solar grid and the, the electric car? So and the, the, I think the, the, the capacitors that you can put in homes mm-hmm. to line up with your idea of, of uh, creating local uh, generation of power to maintain your own lifestyle to get off the grid, so to speak. Is that a pipe dream Elon is selling, or is that actual reality that you think would be manageable? Depending, obviously, on where you are. If there's not a lot of sunlight where you live, then so be it, right? But uh, for everybody else, he seems to be pitching this as sort of an idea. So we wanted to get somebody's perspective on it who's actually in the business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So unsubsidized, uh, it's. Um crazy okay uh that's yeah that's the because at at current prices of batteries Mm, um mm -hmm. because and it doesn't create a very good solution for uh getting off grid unless you want to modify your behavior you're willing to modify your behavior to a a high degree Um, okay and then it also creates the other thing that bothers me about it is it doesn't really free you from dependency because batteries need to be um refurbished like you you're not going to buy a battery and then you have a battery and a source of electricity that you own and you can work on 
and maintain in perpetuity. You're buying a, you know, a uh, consumable good. Right. Um, right, right, right. So now this isn't maybe not a great uh, example, but just, you know, apples, it's apples to oranges, but people have distributed um, generators, which yep. are admittedly pretty dirty, still uh -huh. running from like the 1940s. Right, 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 right. But if you get a, uh, you know, a wall pack in your house, maybe it'll last 10 years. Mm. Uh, maybe it'll last a little more. But then also, I think uh, they have about seven kilowatt hours. Yeah. And seven kilowatt hours, it depends on your home and your situation, but maybe that's going to last you, uh, I mean, best case scenario, it'll last you a day. Mm. So, you know, it's not a very reliable system if you're concerned about having uh, backup power. Right. Or, yeah, that's that's what I would say. Um, and then it's also extremely expensive if uh, if you're not getting it subsidized by a state and federal grant. So if you live in California, I think mm. you can get it extremely cheap. I know people mm. who have. But if you live somewhere else, then it's going to be expensive. Uh, you also don't have the sun, and it's not as, as reliable. However, right. so that's me, you know, <clears throat> uh, that, that's my negative uh, take. But the flip side, when you put an electric vehicle with the situation, it becomes very different. Um, okay. The electric vehicle may have a lot more capacity uh, in its batteries. Yeah. And, um, and the other thing about electric vehicles that's extremely interesting to me is if they do become prevalent, the amount of power that's flowing over the grid mm. increases. Um, I, I did figure this out at one time. Um, mm. but I think it was close to doubles. Uh, just if we got the cars all to switch over to electric. Yeah. Yeah. I figured okay. it out from like gas miles to, and based on the efficiency in gas miles to electric power miles. But, uh, that's in a spreadsheet buried on my computer somewhere. So, but anyway, <laughs> it would be a huge amount of demand growth. Um, and would, and that actually would be a, a big opportunity, um, for a more distributed grid, both because those vehicles could be dual, um, use assets, you know, they can be backup power plus, uh, vehicles. And, you know, you have this problem right now where you have a reserve margin that depresses the need for local development. All of a sudden you have uh, the reverse situation. So, I mean, that could be very exciting. Of course, mm. so far electric vehicles are still, you know, kind of pricey for right. a lot of people. Um, right. You know, I, I, I always hesitate to make any predictions at all about technological advancement right? Um, because it's, it's, you know, the only person, you know, unless you're Charles Goodyear and you're willing to spend your whole life dedicated to actually making it happen yourself mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, then you got to be agnostic. Yeah. I mean, so on that front, when it comes to technology, as, as somebody who's involved in, in, in software engineering, I, I get to sort of see that world from a, from more of a, um, I guess, Talebian point of view. And, and from that point of view, I kind of see it as follows. It's like there's jokers on the left who are essentially politically unhinged to a certain degree, uh, wanting to take their uh, ideology and spread it worldwide. Uh, and then there are clowns on the right 
who think that any moment you'll have AI and it'll solve all the problems because they think computation is everything, right? So Joker's on the left, Clown's on the right, and uh, IYI's in both camps of a different variety. And so I've always been skeptical of people who make because because when I when I hear uh, Elon's pitch for the car and and the and the house that's going to be rechargeable through the um, you know solar panels and whatnot, what I what I really see and this could just be an anomaly based on how I see things is that what you're really doing is you're hiding the problem set that you're really trying to claim to be solving by punting it to somebody else, right? So in this case, from what you just explained. It's like, yeah, my car is electric and I'm, I'm, I'm all green. Let me go to, um, you know, Whole Foods and buy my kale juice and uh, brag about how green I am. Meanwhile, you just push it onto the grid and the grid is still generating that electricity in a carbon non-neutral way. So you feel good. So you get the virtue signal. But the reality of it is it's much more complicated than that, right? It could actually be much worse. Well, yeah, be- I mean, yeah. if those car, <laughs> if those cars uh, and solar panels are being made in China, with uh, mm. 900 gigawatt, kilowatt, uh, gigawatts of coal. Um, right. Yeah. It, is that a solution to the problem? And I mean, this sort of gets to sort of the localism questions and questions of transparency that come with that. Um, right. Because one of the advantages of doing things locally as opposed to universal solutions to problems is that you at least – you have better internalization of the externalities that you produce. So yes. it may, may be less efficient in some ways, and it may uh, have some risks that otherwise wouldn't exist, but you have a better idea of what those are. Uh, right. At least you have the ability to have a better idea of what those are. Um, and then you also, you know, I don't know all the answers to this, but, you know, you, you look at people like, uh, and I won't mention any names, but cause I, don't, <laughs> I don't, if there are, I, I'm a little paranoid, but if there are any issues with ro- local regulators, you don't want to get in trouble, but. People who are looking oh, at, course. you know, I'm going to do micro hydro in my particular mm. situation um, right. to generate power. And it's like, okay, that's, that's great. You understand what your personal risks and tolerances and needs are, and you're going to create a solution for that. Right. I don't know exactly what that world looks like in all of the distributed energy areas. And I think mm. actually it's an important point that it's impossible for me to know what that looks like because mm. it's emergent, right? Right, it, right, right. It, it needs to develop from people tinkering at a local level to put together what they want. And right. if I'm going to sit here and say, I know what that is, then that means that I don't even believe in that process. Right. So right, right. I, I, you know, I, I'm excited about seeing, getting to see what it is. And I think in some ways there's maybe more opportunity in uh, areas like Africa that haven't built up all this infrastructure already to develop mm. a better system. Mm. Um, right. Because, yeah, the infrastructure we've built becomes can become an albatross to us that prevents us from right. developing, you know, further. Yeah, you know, see, that's interesting to me in the following regard because um, I have friends who uh, actually even have some um, uh, remote uh, partners that I do subcontract work with. Um, one of them is in Nigeria, and um, whenever we have the conversation, I'm like, okay, here's the project. I need you to do this, this, and this, and he's like, yeah, I can't get started till tomorrow. Why not? We don't have electricity. Aha. Right, so it's something that yeah. we take for granted, yep. but in, in other parts of the world, this, it's always a real, real issue. I have another friend of mine who um, uh, is from Pakistan, and and uh, when we talk about particular matters, the, the first thing they always bring up is, oh, well, we don't have electricity there yet. Uh, it's been a couple of days, wait till they get it back, power back online, so we can communicate with them. And so the stuff we take for granted, 
is is interesting because um, at the same time they'll tell you that their uh, telecom prices and their offers and their plans are much better because they didn't have the infrastructure of the landlines that we are quote unquote to to borrow your phrase the albatross around our neck isn't there for them so they just put up cell towers and they're good to go because they didn't have to put up um, those uh, uh, roadside telephone booths yeah. uh, poles but similarly from the energy point of view since they're somewhat behind the rest of the world, they can actually try to explore a much more um, effective solution to the problem, whereas what we have is essentially like, okay, to build this power plant, you're going to need, I don't know, $5 billion, and it's going to be amortized over the next 60 years to pay back for itself, and hopefully along the way there isn't a tsunami-level event that wipes you clean, right? Mm -hmm. So over there, they have to look for different solutions that are much more uh, localized and regional just because of the, 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 the impacts of what, what's, what's possible within the technology grids there. So there's this beautiful contrast between um, having advanced uh, quote-unquote telecoms and having really uh, outdated power grids uh, to the point where half the time they're used to just power outages. Whereas yeah. here, we have sort of a different set of problems. Right? Our, our solution may be good for us now, but as, as you're de- de- describing it, uh, it may not be very good for us much longer if we continue to neglect some of the concepts that we've been discussing here. Yeah. And it's also the situation, I mean, it, when you put it that way, um, that we, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it made you all of a sudden made me think of a kind of depressing thought, which is we've built all this infrastructure and we continue to build it with uh, cheap money. Um, mm. And then we're also when as we build it, we create management costs that right. are real. They're not you know they're real costs, right? Um, and those don't go away if the cheap money goes away, right? Um, so an overbuilt system is even more expensive than you know it is when you're building it. Yep, yep. That's why it's, it's the same principle in, in, in software. It's like an over-engineered solution is actually much more harmful down the road than a far too simple solution, which can be susceptible to being corrected down the road, right? So if you have something completely over-engineered, good luck fixing it. Um, you know, two years down the road, when you discover, hey, all the bugs are related to this particular issue. So in this yeah. case, it seems like it's much more applicable to what you're talking about as well. Yeah, this is like uh, what Ger Gigerenzer says about if you want to solve a very difficult, complicated problem um, <laughs> that's forward-looking, uh-huh. you need an extremely simple solution. Yep. Uh, and if you're, tr- but if you're trying to, you know, but you know, you do the reverse uh, if you're trying to analyze something that happened in the past. Yep. Um, yep. Which is is actually a great description of what goes on in most regulated. Um, in most regulated power markets, we do all this analysis over past faults and problems that have occurred, and then we mm. try to build future infrastructure around complicated descriptions of those past events that mm. really have very little to do with um, what may happen in the future. Now, right. I think the saving grace of that is that you still have a lot of sort of crusty operators who are in control mm. rooms. Right. Making decisions based on heuristic basises, even if the analysis that went into creating the regulatory construct was mm-hmm. overbuilt and uh, unrealistic. 
So, mm. and that's in almost every market, you have a decoupling between the planning of the market and the operating the operating of the market. So the market right, operators right. are some you know paranoid utility guys who do who consider their job to be keep to be to keep the lights on. Um, right. And they actually generally do a pretty good job of that because they're not thinking about whether it's efficient. They're thinking about whether the market the the grids at risk. Right, right. So, so here's an interesting question for you. And in one particular area where, you know, when it comes to the conversation with AI, I'm very, uh, obviously, as a software engineer, I'm in one camp, but I'm also as a realist in another camp, so I have foot in both. But here's one area where I found it to be relatively interesting, which is that when Google purchased DeepMind and they had the DeepMind guys create a, sort of like an algorithm to manage the efficiency of their data centers. They managed to get some really interesting results. And in that particular area, I would imagine having sort of like an AI system deployed to monitor the usage patterns is much more effective than having a human being do it just because the variables are too many. So what's your take on, on the, app, the narrow application of AI into that field? Is that even happening or is that just um, an anomaly because Google was trying to save money at their data centers? Uh I don't know because um, people talk about AI constantly yep. in the electric industry. But, okay. you know, I never know. Are they talking about a variable autoregression? Right, are talking, right. Are talking about a spreadsheet? <laughs> like, I, you know, it's very difficult to know what people are talking about when they say AI. Um, so I don't know how much impact... Well, I guess I would say I don't think it's very likely that there's much impact by uh, AI in the way the grid is being operated uh, right now. I could be wrong about that. There may be things that I'm unaware of, but I don't think it actually has much much impact on day-to-day operations. I see. I see. Okay. Okay. So you had another area where the hype hasn't really met the reality just yet. Yeah. Not yet. I mean, and it's also – the power markets are supposed to be markets, right? Right, right. They're not supposed to be top-down constructs. So there's an intelligence that happens with markets that I think is almost, if not, it's almost impossible, if not impossible, for AI to replicate. Right. So I, I don't even know, for most of the things that happen, if it's desirable to have AI, whatever it means, um, involved. I mean, there's, a, there's also a good question of, I think I'm going to misquote, but there's an Aaron Haspelism about this, which is something about uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, I'm, I'm going to get it wrong, but it's something about humans basically just define computer uh, intelligence to mean things um, that, uh, or, or in, define intelligence to mean things that computers can't do yet. Right. So we're constantly just moving the goalpost on these things. Yep. yep. Um, so what we mean I, I, you know, by AI, for instance, 30 years ago, the way that um, the market solves for prices would have been impossible. Mm. Um, they do five-minute prices, and they're doing it on a security-constrained economic dispatch, which means on a network basis, they're choosing the lowest-cost generator that doesn't ch- cause uh, any of the lines to melt down. Mm. They couldn't have done that. 30 years ago is right. that and they the reason they couldn't have done it is they didn't have the computing or telemetry power 
Is that artificial right. intelligence? <laughs> no, not at all. Not even close. Right. So, so I, I see what I see where you're getting with that. Like the, the the things that open up in terms of possibilities get overly extrapolated beyond reason is what I'm gathering from what you just stated there. Would that be an accurate reflection of it? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I don't even know what it would mean to have mm. an artificially artificial intelligence uh, informed or improved market. Mm. It's yeah. Well, maybe you need to get somebody else who's more educated about that subject on. Well, I mean, I I look at it from the point of view of like if you put a system like that in place, whatever variable you're trying to optimize for would eventually hide risk somewhere else, right? So that's where I would see it as like, okay, we want energy efficiency from our resources to our customers, and we want to maximize and optimize the price that we can get per watt for that. Like that would be just the sales pitch you'd have to make to even sell something like that let alone implement it. And as soon as you put those variables in play and you let it kind of run, you can ima- immediately imagine the number of unintended consequences that it would open you up to, including second order effects of having a system. I know it's kind of like Uber surge pricing, except for hospitals during an outage, right? So, I mean, that's the type of thing I would foresee potentially coming to fruition, but you know, uh, we'll just kind of leave it at that, at that point, unless you have something to add to it. Yeah. I would just say like on a dynamic basis, it's, so much it's even more complicated than that because everybody has a different price every hour for right. what they attach to the value of reliability um it changes by you know customer by customer generator by generator um and you can't necessarily learn that from the past that, that right. information doesn't exist anywhere you know right. like somebody right. just gets in a big a big order to contract a, out a bunch of of product uh, and they didn't have that, you know, it, it, you may be able to get that if it's, if it's something like a bottling plant that always right. has to bottle more soda when it's hot, right. but that could also just be completely random and right. there's no way to model it. Right. So, right, right. you know, Meghan Markle was caught uh, drinking a, a Pepsi. Now everybody wants Pepsi. So, you know, ramp right. up the bottles. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Random things like that. Like, like Joffre was talking about how they had a huge one of his best-selling products that he was not was uh, um, Princess Diana Prince after she died. Right. Um, All right. You just don't know when it's going to happen. Right. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, as we get to our uh, wind down uh, for the for the podcast, uh, is there any other topics here that we we didn't touch on that you'd still like to go over? I feel like I owe some people on Twitter a couple of stories about things that are broken. Go for it. <laughs> All right, I'm going to I'm going to cover two. One is um the dryer. Okay. So like progressively my dryer was was failing to dry as well. Um so it was it was just getting worse slowly though. So okay. you know, it just got to the point where I was like uh, I was just telling the kids just run it again, run it again, um my older kids uh and then you know, it got to the point where it was like taking 2 hours and not drying a load. So I was like I better take a look at this. So I went in, you know, I took the back off the dryer. There was nothing there. I was like, you know. Um, so then I, I, I took a look at, uh, you know, the, the heater to make sure that the flame was coming on. It was a gas dryer. The flame was coming on. It was weird. So then, um, you know, obviously cleaned out the lint trap. Then I took a look at the hose that I pulled off the back of the dryer. Mm. And I started pulling things out. 
and I was like a tennis ball, uh, a Barbie doll leg, a doll head, uh, grass, um, wow. six acorns. Um, the, so like once I figured it out, there was about a two and a half foot long section of the dryer wow. hose that was stuffed with things. And wow. included in those things were um, aerosol um, bug spray containers. <laughs> um, so I figured out that my son, who's somewhat obsessed with stuffing things and things, had just over time kept putting things in this hole on the side of the house. He didn't know where it went to, but he was like, hey, this is a hole that's seemingly you know, bottomless. I can keep putting things in. And he just was throwing thing out. after thing after thing in there until I figured it out. Um, then we had to have that conversation about why that was a bad idea. But, you know, I was just so happy that none of those aerosol, uh, containers had, you know, caught fire from the hot air, um, right. loaded, um, that he got off easy now. And then the other thing about the dryer, this one is, I still to this day don't know how it happened. It seems physically impossible, Okay. but, uh, I'm guessing you haven't worked too much on dryers. Uh, I have not. Well, yes, lucky you. Um, <laughs> there is a fan um, at, at the bottom of where the hose for the dryer is that's pushing the air out. Okay. Um, and then there is a uh, sort of box um, where the lint trap is, uh, and then there's a filter above that. And okay. somehow between those two spaces – Again, I was having trouble with the dryer drying. I found a box of sparklers. Oh, like the firecracker thing? Yeah. You light it up? Okay. Yes. Full box of sparklers. <laughs> wow. Uh, no idea how it had gotten inserted in there. Very happy that that also didn't start a fire. Although sparklers aren't that flammable, so that may not have been – although it could have started the lint. But anyway, didn't go on fire. Got that out. Um, then the other mystery – that happened at our house was there was a toilet that wasn't draining well. And okay. then the other clue was it clinked when you flushed it. Okay. Like a tinkly noise, <laughs> uh, like a glass bottle being rolled down like concrete. Okay. Um, so this was like a huge mystery to me. And then I didn't put this together, but uh, at the same time, a doorknob had disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> one so of those, your son <laughs> one of those like crystal doorknobs <laughs> right <laughs> so then like like a bolt of lightning it struck me put these two things together and i was like oh my gosh the doorknob must be in the toilet so then i had to take the toilet completely off um turn it upside down put it in the shower and take and i had to take the doorknob out of the bottom which i'm super glad it didn't it didn't do that on its own because the last thing I need is a glass doorknob somewhere in my pipes. Right. Uh, but anyway, once that was resolved, you know, it was, we bleached the doorknob and put it back on. Uh, <laughs> everything was fine. So, so was it, was it your same son that did all three events? Was he, was he in charge of the dryer mishaps and the, uh, the, the toilet? No, I'm pretty <laughs> sure that, well, I don't know who did the sparklers. Uh, oh. I don't even know how that happened. He did the uh, – and it was an older one who did the dryer vent, but it was a younger one who did the doorknob. I'm pretty sure, but I never got that one nailed down too. When you have, when you have nine kids, things just happen. 
And like right. a lot of times nobody's willing to fess up and you just never find out. <laughs> just, uh, you, you need to watch some more movies about the Gestapo and how to do the <laughs> interrogations. Well, you know, I'm not willing to do any extraordinary rendition for, uh, any of this stuff. He's got to accept it. And then, but that same son who did the dryer also stuffed, uh, a pencil sharpener, four toothbrushes, a nail clipper, uh, and a rubber ball down the sink drain. Which oh, I had wow. to, ended up having to <laughs> replace the entire pipes underneath that bathroom sink because it, uh, it was those chrome kind that just kind of get old and brittle after a while anyway. Um, right. So when I was taking it apart to get that stuff out. It just you know cracked uh, with the <laughs> pipe, so I had to end up replacing that with PVC. But uh, yeah, that's... Um, <laughs> So he kind of did you a fa- he kind of did you a favor. Look, Daddy, I made it so that you have to fix this thing that was gonna crack anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It saved me uh saved me a, a ceiling repair. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Well, thank you very much today for taking the time to walk us through your your journey. Um, we wish you the very best, obviously, with future uh, interactions with the many children you've helped out, and the, the, I'm sure the many that you will continue to help out. And the the enlightening experience with regards to how you uh, participate in the energy market and some of the ways for us to think about that. So I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate you taking the time. And uh, yeah, it's an honor to be on. Um, yeah, and I wish you all the best with the, the rest of this podcast. I'm glad you did it. And I admire you for taking the initiative. Thank you very much. Take care, right. Bye, Bye, guys. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we have. The truth is, any conversation worthy of having will inherently be a risky one. Thank you for listening. Stay anti-fragile and carry on the ancient tradition and your own unique way of saying what only you can say and doing what only you can do. Abiding by Milton's words, this is Ember Sadat and Ace Deliri signing off, wishing you the very best of worthy and risky conversations.